0: Started there about four years ago, and there is a discussion group. Our topic is widely or broadly, um, what is a human? Some of the technological, and uh, perhaps medical, pharmaceutical uh, aspects of what it means to be human, and this is kind of a self-indulgent, as you'll as you'll find, uh, exploration of a topic um, I'm interested in. That's how an engineer comes to talk about uh, medicine. Uh, and uh, transplantation and some, some of the moral and ethical questions. This is our uh, group. Our, I would like to uh, personally thank my co-authors for lots of interesting discussion on topics other than this one, as well as this one. This has been a uh, thoughtful inquiry and uh, very beneficial to, to me personally. And I think our, our group has uh, has the potential to share some good ideas with, with you and Uh, I look forward to doing that. As you can see, we come from a variety of uh, fields. Uh, None of us are trained physicians, though um, we certainly like to talk about medicine. So as my uh, introduction said, I have been diagnosed with primary sclerosing cholangitis. Uh, That was in 2001. I was asymptomatic for uh, many years. I finished a graduate degree and started a family I have started to experience some symptoms. I don't know if the room lighting is good or bad, but I do have some jaundice, so you may notice the yellow tinge. Um, I have some nutritional difficulties. Uh, Fat-soluble vitamins are are typically difficult to get, but I wanted to uh, explain what the, the basics of the disease are. It's chronic inflammation with no known cause, and that means there may be many different causes. Um, and one of the definitive components of diagnosis is the uh, appearance of the biliary tree. This is a an X-ray of a liver uh, w- in which a contrast agent has been injected into the biliary tree. So what you see here, I'll, I'll try to point the top loudly. Um, on this side is the spine. The endoscope is down here. And the contrast agent has been uh, let to flow through the biliary tree, and instead of nice smooth, um, oh, sorry, uh, instead of nice smooth bile ducts, um, you'll notice there's a lot of stricturing, diffuse stricturing, and uh, in in front of each stricture there's kind of a bubble. So this is bad. This keeps bile from flowing, and this keeps uh, a lot of digestive uh, action from happening and it also, uh, over time, is toxic to the liver. So there's no way to stop the inflammation or stop this uh, continuing development of scar tissue and stricturing, and that means there is uh, no cure other than treatment by liver transplantation. So the topic of the, the paper is more of a recipient's view, of uh, what it means to receive a liver transplant, and then we'll try to complicate it a little more with some potential alternative treatments. Uh, this is a roadmap of the talk. I want to uh, talk a little bit about the current policy, uh, some of the specifics of liver transplantation, uh, two potential alternatives, and then uh, try to try to grasp what questions a potential recipient might want to ask or thoughts a potential recipient would want to consider uh, given these potential alternatives. Uh, in the United States, our organ donation program started with the uh, Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. Uh, the That's potential amazing. to donate organs depends on a diagnosis of brain death, which is fairly straightforward to make, but very counterintuitive because the person who is a potential donor is still very much alive in the cardiac sense, and a lot of people have moral questions or difficulty with that. I certainly do. Um, There are some, uh, perhaps at least one uh, of my authors, co-authors, who has not yet resolved the question of organ donation, and um, he may or may not be a philosopher, I'll just suggest that, but it is a very important issue and a very uh, difficult one to wrap one's head around uh, when considering uh, organ donation. Uh, There are some pilot programs, uh, one in particular at a uh, Pittsburgh hospital where uh, they're considering trying to harvest organs from ER patients after cardiac death, and there are certainly a web of difficult moral questions involved in that. And I don't uh, have many details, but I just uh, wanted to point that out as a trajectory of Uh, public policy and interest in the medical community for finding more organs. Uh, We have several different consent policies in different states in this country. Uh, Consent uh, typically refers to informed consent, whether you can give informed consent in a a first person sense, that is before you become a potential organ donor and can no longer really communicate. Uh, What does it mean to have given consent uh, and what, what can we do to encourage that, if that's something that should be encouraged? And what can we do to work around um, uh, the shortage of organs? If, if, there, are, if there are ways to uh, craft public policy that respects the individual's potential to give a gift uh, in, in terms of informed consent, what are different things that people have tried, or uh, states have tried? Uh, the phrase legally bind- binding is interesting to me because a lot of states have you know, the, the term legally binding. When you make your choice, if you decide to be an organ donor, um, there is some language that says this is a le- legally binding choice, but in practice, most hospitals would rather find out from a family member or, or do something in addition to just look at the back of your driver's license to figure out uh, whether... Um, you want to be a donor because of the risk of legal action. Um, Also, uh, other public policy um, initiatives have have suggested incentives. Uh, Compensation seems to be a non-starter. Nobody really wants to put a value on the gift of an organ yet. But there are, uh, there there have been laws introduced in Congress, not voted on yet, but uh, the 2009 uh, session has two examples where uh, laws that would encourage donors to be evaluated, uh, this might be living donors, probably more more the potential of uh, perhaps kidney donors, um, and receive some kind of tax credit to cover lost wages, travel, and other expenses associated with um, becoming a donor. Uh, This also uh, another another law would also extend the Family Medical Leave Act so that individuals who are interested in, in being evaluated for donation could uh, keep their jobs. There's also an organization called Life Shares that uh, wants to encourage people who are willing to receive an organ to become donors themselves, and this seems like a, a logical trade or something fair, but also uh, there there are uh, other moral issues or other questions one might one might ask and find a differentiating factor between the wish to donate and the wish to receive. In fact, that's become an, an issue in uh, Israel, i get to uh, in a moment. Um, there's been a lot of study uh, of policies outside the U.S. that include opt-in versus opt-out. The countries in Europe are smaller and uh, tend to have a a wider variety of of policies, Um, some of the statistics show that the opt-in versus opt-out paradigm is uh, making a very big difference in the results of potential donors actually becoming donors uh, versus uh, refusing or choosing not to. Uh, In fact, Brazil uh, tried out an opt-out program but found that uh, hardly anyone Uh, was interested in donating anymore because of the lack of trust in the medical community, everyone was afraid that if they went to the hospital and said the wrong thing, they might uh, end up being an unwilling donor. Uh, Other countries that have tried some of the incentives I talked about on the last last slide uh, include Singapore, which has offered tax credits similar to what I described. Uh, Also tax credits for families of donors. So if your family um, steps up and says, I know this person wanted to donate, and I've encouraged them or supported them. Um, they are eligible for some tax credits. Uh, Israel has enacted legislation uh, or voted on legislation and passed, but I don't think enacted a policy that stems from a rather conservative uh, Orthodox Jewish group that is willing to uh, that, that has a a, uh, a policy or a. Uh, Directive from some of the rabbis that says it's it's okay to receive an organ but that the diagnosis of of brain death is and and donating an organ is tantamount to murder so the uh, Directive or the the policy is that you should not be an organ donor if you're part of this uh, group and so the the difficulty there is obvious and the way they've attempted to circumvent it is to offer priority to families of committed donors. So if you're willing to donate, then your family member moves up on the list. All of this talk about donation and the encouragement of donors seems uh, a difficult question in itself, but I'd like to point out uh, this, the, the relative demand for organs is, is small, Uh, here in the U.S. relative to the entire population, and if you think about it, I'm not trying to be uh, statistically rigorous here, but um, especially in the case of uh, livers, that your potential to be an organ donor is probably smaller than your potential to be a liver transplant recipient. That is because there are people on the list for livers that go uh, without, that that, uh, pass away waiting for a liver. So it's a very small chance, uh, relatively speaking, that you could become a donor, yet we've, we've talked so much in uh, public policy debate and moral debate on the um, correctness or uh, ways to increase the supply of organs, we haven't really uh, addressed the aspects I think are important for receiving an organ. And that's, uh, that's part of what I wish to, to discuss more today. Uh, some specifics on how uh, liver transplantation works. Ten years ago, when I was first diagnosed, the uh, priority on the list came uh, just as a measure of time on the list. So at this point, I would probably already be accruing time if they still work under that model. Uh, Now they have a score, a model of end-stage liver disease, or MELD score, that takes some some blood tests to, to measure your liver function. I, thankfully, have enough... Other liver function, my bilirubin is obviously elevated. That's why I'm jaundiced. But the rest of my liver function is good. The the risk is that the backed up bile will eventually become toxic, and lead to uh, cirrhosis. But this model uh, gets more people through the list. It, it prioritizes the sickest people to the to the front of the list, regardless of how long you might have known you've been sick, or the the course of your particular disease, or or maybe what behaviors might have caused your disease, like uh, for psc there 's no known cause and i 'm certainly not a binge drinker and haven 't been since my haven 't really had anything to drink at all since my diagnosis but uh, there is uh, certainly debate in uh, Great Britain with national uh, health care as to whether alcoholics and chronic abusers of alcohol should should somehow measure differently on the list of uh, priority for liver transplantation uh, there is uh, a Development fairly recent of a process uh, similar to kidney dialysis that is referred to as liver dialysis. This is, a, uh, as the liver fails, it doesn't uh, produce as much albumin and cannot um, conjugate uh, materials in the blood like it should uh, to process them. So there's a, a procedure that can act in lieu of a well-functioning uh, liver the, the difficulty is that it's not as straightforward as dialysis. It's still very expensive uh, on the order of thirty to $50,000, and that buys you about a week or maybe two weeks. So this would be something uh, kind of a heroic measure for someone waiting for a liver to uh, extend their life a, a short amount to uh, hopefully end in a transplant. Um, there are... Uh, so the, the best object, uh, option or the most prevalent option is still uh, cadaver organs, but there are also possibilities for a living donor. And having discussed this with my physician, it turns out that the living donor program, while uh, available in some places, is not very popular. The uh, typical person who would pursue a living donor would be someone with a very uh, low MELD score, but a very, very debilitating set of symptoms. And that's rather rare because the MELD score captures your prognosis and uh, potential, to, um, uh, potential to, uh, to, to leave the list unsatisfied or to pass away while you're, while you're on the list. And so it also involves uh, asking a family member for a, a rather risky uh, procedure. And the program at the transplant center where I'm, I'm being evaluated actually shut down. They had a living donor program and no longer offer that option because it was just not uh, utilized. Uh, One other uh, development uh, that's fairly recent, I suppose, is that a lot of transplant centers are changing their policies or adding policies to offer uh, what's called a split lobe donation. If If the first person on the list, the highest priority person, is willing to receive a split lobe or half a liver, then the rest of the donated liver can be used for someone else who is the next highest compatible person on the list. So this is how one liver can serve uh, potentially two people and someone who is not the top or highest person on the list might also get a liver sooner. Um, I'd like to mention that a a living donor or a split-lobe transplant is very, affect it once it takes. I thought, it, you know, that uh, once you, uh, if, if you only got half a liver, there might be a long time waiting for it to regenerate, but it actually takes about a week for a half liver to grow almost to full size and full function. It's, uh, that is something that amazed me, actually. So those are the, the current alternatives. Um, we are not proposing testing or uh, considering how soon any of these, uh, uh, any of the other two alternatives I'm about to discuss, uh, how likely they are. But we wanted to introduce two possibilities to do kind of a thought experiment or an inventory of what questions a potential recipient might want to ask. So the currently available options are. Uh, Do some measures to extend life, such as liver dialysis or what I've mentioned here. the The ERCP was the procedure I showed in the picture, where they inserted an endoscope, and in this case, they would either use a balloon to dilate the major bile, the common bile duct, or the major um, bile ducts, the two lobes, uh, insert stents, or um, otherwise try to try to relieve some of the major strictures. This is just buying time. Uh, The the course of the disease, though, is such that you would eventually, without a transplant, um, experience liver failure. So two potential alternatives are autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplantation or xenotransplantation. Uh, Autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplantation involves stem cells, yes, but they are the stem cells from the patient that is going to benefit from them. So what they do is harvest stem cells from the bone marrow of the patient and then uh, basically knock out most of the immune system and use those stem cells that were harvested beforehand to reset or restart the immune system. Now this has certainly risks involved with it because uh, you're going to take a functioning immune system, however well it functions, and shut it down and try to restart it. Um, it, is, it has been successful to treat other autoimmune diseases. Uh, in the case of PSC, it's, it's generally uh, regarded as an autoimmune disease, so the inflammation starts and doesn't have any root cause necessarily other than a malfunctioning immune system. So if we could somehow reset, that might um, offer the possibility to stop the damage that's occurring. Now, it wouldn't heal any of the damage. There would still be scar tissue and strictures. But uh, as I've, I've said, I've had uh, about 10 years on a liver that was diagnosed as having diffuse stricturing and some damage. So there's a possibility for good quality of life. Um, the, the risks, of course, are uh, potential mm-hmm. difficulty during that, during that resetting period, which can last for several weeks. Uh, Some of the trade-offs for this procedure are that uh, it's expensive, Um, perhaps Mm -hmm. not as expensive as a liver transplantation, but still very expensive. The uh, damage remains, as I mentioned. Uh, One of the factors in PSC that's, that's always sort of in the back of my mind is that a lot of patients with PSC end up with cholangiocarcinoma, which is cancer of the bile ducts and it's not uh, clear what causes that or what the root cause of that might be, just that they're correlated. Uh, The option to have an animal organ, uh, xenotransplantation does not exist, of course, but there have been animal organs transplanted into uh, humans before, uh, whether there might be a protocol or potentially genetically modified animals to realize this is still uh, certainly a question, but it does not involve receiving a, an organ gift from another human. So that is a, a, a feature of both of these that uh, there is a perhaps a lesser moral question or a moral complication to uh, these two alternatives as opposed to receiving a cadaver organ or a, a, a human organ from a living donor. So the questions I'd like to ask, or the questions that I have considered as a potential recipient, are these two especially. What constitutes a metric of success or what, uh, what factors should contribute to one? And then uh, what commitments or obligation um, would I incur? So some of the factors, certainly um, sustaining the recipient's life has to be listed in there, though I don't know whether it is the first one one should think about or the one that should bear the most weight. I don't have an elaborate chair analogy like our speaker earlier today, but I uh, look forward to thinking about that and and trying to weigh some of these factors in that uh, regard. Um, The main difficulty I see with the two alternatives is that that if they are viable, uh, will I have a choice Or will the provider of my health care, maybe the insurance company, have something to say about which option I should take? Well, if you're going to pay out of pocket, you might be able to get a human organ, but since we're footing the bill, we're going to have to to find a... um, or or we're going to have to use a a pig organ, for example. might be a a trade-off that I might participate in or I might not. Um, There are certainly large amounts of resources involved in being a a recipient of an organ donation, and I am troubled by the fact that we, we sort of view insurance as a casino. I pay my premium. I make a bet against this very large casino and hope that they get to keep my premium and I get to keep my health. But if I should somehow win and be granted the the large amount of money and resources it takes to both receive an organ and maintain it through immunosuppressive drugs, that's a little less... Uh, Tangible than if perhaps I were uh, in a faith community, like, uh, as an example, I'll use the the Amish, that certainly avail themselves of medical care, but often do so as part of their community and communion offering. So if I knew all the people I was sharing my insurance premiums with, I might make a different decision about whether or not I wanted to be a recipient. Another question would be the role of government in which public policy I favored most. Would I want to move to a different country? Would I want to move to a different state in order that I might be considered to receive an organ from a a better uh, public policy framework? And I've given that some thought, but found that uh, my life in West Tennessee is probably as it should be in my faith community and, and work. And so uh, I'm... I'm still likely to, to receive an organ that, if I need to, to sustain my life. That's uh, a, an important question for me, but I feel better having considered these questions and, and what a metric of success might be. Looking forward from that, um, if I were to need and receive an organ, some of these questions are also difficult. So what obligations would I incur? What obligations would I incur to the family that donated the organ? or uh, depending on which alternative I might avail myself of, and what obligations would I have to society to live out my life? Uh, These have been some of the the questions we've discussed and thought about, and it's been very very productive uh, to at least consider what it means to to be a potential recipient. I have um, just briefly mentioned my present trajectory and uh, of the disease and what I what I think I would do, and I understand I'm pretty much out of time. So, uh, I would like to thank you for your attention and offer you the opportunity to comment or ask questions. Yes. Uh, I would say discussion. Oh, I'm sorry. I would say discussion with my colleagues, asking questions, and then finding other people's answers has really been the best um, and most fruitful uh, for me. And I, I know this isn't necessarily all about me, but it's also it's something that I think uh, potential recipients should consider. So one of the things we talked about is maybe producing a pamphlet similar to the "So Do You Want to Be an Organ Donor?" pamphlet something that asks or does an inventory, a worksheet or something like that. What if you're a potential organ recipient? What what things should you think about lest you be caught unaware when the surgeon comes to say, so here are all the things we're gonna have to do and everything it means to, to get an organ, to be overwhelmed all at once um, without any preparation is, is something that I would I would be very afraid to do. <laughs> Well, I think, I think people aren't very well informed of the process or the likelihood that they would become a donor. So you're right. It would ha- You would have to suffer some terrible accident and be only sustained uh, basically by machinery to have viable organs. And I think people gloss over that and just, just have this view of doctors coming to harvest their body parts and give them to people. And while it is... Uh, a common view that this is a supererogatory act. It's also a, a, a kind of a personal violation. So, um, depending on what you think about the afterlife or what your uh, how you should treat your body as a temple, for example, there there may be a lot of reluctance in that part. Uh, our one of my colleagues gave a great example. He could uh, he would not be regarded poorly if he just went outside and started digging large holes in his lawn and cutting it up and throwing plants everywhere. But if he went to uh, perhaps harvest some organs or something, it would seem like you were destroying a hole that, that probably needed uh, at least careful consideration to remain whole. Um, so I think that's part of the difficulty is that there is insufficient information when people give or don't give informed consent and, uh, religious, uh, views I think are also a big player. So, uh, whether or not your body needs to remain whole to, uh, to enjoy an afterlife or, or questions like this are important to people. Thank you again.